0: John Bunyan's uh, classic novel, The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, it tells the story of Christian as he travels from the city of destruction. He goes through the wicket gate and towards the celestial city. He is on the path heading towards the celestial city. And so along the way, uh, Christian meets different trials and, and difficulties. He stumbles and he falters uh, his, his way along, but he continues with great help to the city of the king. And so as you're, you're reading about Christian and his journey on the pilgrim's path, uh, through his journey, he, he meets a variety of, of different people. One such person is Hopeful. Hopeful is a fellow traveler who is also trudging along, making his way to uh, the celestial city looking for refuge. But another individual that they meet towards the end of their journey is a man by the name of Ignorance. So Christian and Hopeful meet Ignorance close to the end, and and seeing him walking alone, he's by himself, they join him and, and they strike up a conversation. And so Christian and Ignorance begin talking, and as they're talking, we learn that Ignorance expects to get into the celestial city based on his own righteousness, Sure, during the course of the conversation, ignorance comes out and says that Christ died for sinners, and that one must believe on Christ to be counted right with God, but there's a big but that comes after, after ignorance um, makes this proclamation. He says that it's actually his righteousness is that what will gain him salvation. Eventually, he tells Christian during their back and forth as he's growing increasingly more frustrated with Christian, he says, how would we live at all if we could be justified by Christ's personal righteousness alone? And so after that, he doesn't want to talk with Christian and hopeful anymore. He separates himself from them. And so when the pilgrims finally arrive at the celestial city, Christian and hopeful are welcomed in by the king. But ignorance is not. So ignorance manages to make his way to the gate through uh, other means than that of, of, of Christian and hopeful. He's able to sneak his way up all the way to the gate. But when asked, he's unable to produce the paper that is given to all true pilgrims who seek entrance into the city on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. And when he arrives with nothing but his own righteousness, he's bound and he's carried away from the gate and he's thrown into hell. And so when we come to Psalm chapter 7, we find a warning that is very similar to the one that Christian gives to ignorance along the path to the celestial city. If you hope to find shelter in God, then your righteousness is not enough. You need the righteousness of another. So turn with me to Psalm chapter seven. It says this Psalm seven, a shigaon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart. "'Rending it in pieces with none to deliver. "'O Lord my God, if I have done this, "'if there is wrong in my hands, "'if I have repaid my friend with evil "'or plundered my enemy without cause, "'let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, "'and let him trample my life to the ground "'and lay my glory in the dust.'" Selah. "'Arise, O Lord, in your anger.'" Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give thanks to the Lord. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Just pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you reveal about who you are, your character, and your word. We thank you for what your word teaches us about ourselves, about our sin, about our desperate need to be covered in a righteousness that is not our own. Lord, I pray that you would work through your word this morning. It is only your spirit working through your word that can do a transforming work in any person's life. I pray, God, that you would be merciful to each of us this morning to do work by your word that only you can do. pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So there are two things I want us to consider from the psalm this morning. And the first is that only the righteous find shelter in the Lord. And so like, unlike in the last few Psalms, when we come to Psalm 7, uh, we actually have a little bit of information that's provided for us about the situation that, that prompted David to write. It's still not quite like Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 3 uh, because there we, we have David who, who gives a pretty specific uh, situation. He tells us pretty, pretty much what it is that's prompted him to write. Here, all we know definitively is that David has been confronted by a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a fellow by the name of Cush. And so I think that might raise some questions for us. Is it possible that uh, Cush has approached David and accused him of wrongdoing as it pertains to David's rise to the throne and the fall of the house of Saul? Saul, of course, was from the tribe of Benjamin, and that's I think that's possible. We do know that David wrote, like I said, Psalm chapter 3 when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. We know that while he was fleeing from Absalom, he was confronted by a Benjaminite, a fellow by the name of Shimei, who accused him of stealing the throne from Saul And from his his line, he says to David, "You know, blood is on you. The blood of Saul is on you. You're ruling in his place." And so, with take that, and I think it may be worth pointing out. That some of the themes that began in Psalm chapter three that have kind of that have continued along for the last several psalms, specifically ones like evildoers uh, with their evil doing, particularly being uh, telling lies. Well, that continues to chapter Psalm and, and almost comes to a head in in chapter Psalm. And so, I think if we bring those things together, I think it is reasonable to suggest that Cush has accused David of something like being power-hungry and baiting Saul into his downfall. But that is speculation. Uh, Ultimately, we are not told the precise details of David's encounter with Cush. But what is readily apparent for us is that David has been accused of doing something evil. In verses 1 and 2... David calls out to God for shelter from pursuers who want uh, to hurt him. You know, he, he describes those that are after them like a, a lion that is chasing down its, its prey. And if you've ever watched you know, a nature documentary dealing with the African savanna and it's had a shot of a lion chasing down prey, we'll, we'll use an, an antelope. You know, what it's, you know that when that lion gets going, the antelope is, is pretty much a goner. And so in whatever documentary you're watching, you know, all the shots are basically the same. You have this massive lion, its muscles flexing with every stride, and it's chasing down this helpless little creature. It doesn't matter how hard or how fast the little antelope runs. It doesn't matter what direction it goes. It's, it's not going to get away. Before long, the lion gets close enough and it lunges, claws out, digging them into the back of this uh, little antelope. And then come the teeth, the powerful jaw clamping down on on its doomed dinner. And that's basically the image that David gives us of his pursuers. Like a lion, they are barreling down on him. They are ready to put an end to him. And he tells us that if he does not take shelter in the Lord, there is no hope for him. There is no one who will deliver him. He's a goner if there is not shelter for him in the Lord. And now if we jump down to to verse 6, then we see that David expects to find shelter in the Lord because of what he calls on the Lord to do. He calls on the Lord to rise up against his enemies. And so the picture that we get there is, it's very much like a courtroom. You know, David wants the Lord to rise up and then take his seat at the judge's bench. And then he wants God to gather all of the people together, bring them all into the courtroom so that they can hear the judgment of God. And in this judgment, David anticipates that the Lord is going to find him innocent. It says in verse 9, And he calls on the Lord to test the hearts and the minds of humanity. David appeals to the Lord's knowledge of of what is in him and what is in his enemies. And so it's based on this knowledge that David says in verses 8 and 9, judge me according to my righteousness and according to the integrity in me. So whatever David has been accused of, when the Lord reviews the charges, what David is expecting is that the Lord is going to toss them all out because they're unfounded. And not only that, he expects his enemies will be exposed. They're going to be shown to have been liars. And this is going to happen in front of all the people. And so David will be exonerated and his foes will be brought low. The Lord's judgment will be very thorough well let's pause there for for just a moment See, I think it would be easy to take the theme of vindication that is present here in Psalm 7 and just run with it but I think that would be a mistake so that's not to say that vindication of the righteous is not a theme in the text. It absolutely is, especially in verses 8 and 9. But I don't think that that's David's primary concern. But I think it's easy for us to make that David's primary concern because of our own desire to be vindicated against whoever it is that we think is against us. And so what that leads us to do is view David as representing ourselves in this text. And because we want to read the psalm through the eyes of David, where I'm David, we then want to latch on to this theme of vindication. See, I I bet that we could all come up with times where we have been wrongly accused of something or maybe had our motives questioned when we were just trying to do something good. So we end up interpreting and applying Psalm 7 through the lens of those experiences. See, if I'm putting myself in the place of of David, then this psalm makes me feel really good because what that does is it puts me outside of God's appointed judgment in verse 7. That judgment is for somebody else. The Lord is going to deal with all the people who have done me wrong so I can take heart when I'm wronged because God's going to get them. But within the passage itself, we see that David does not just focus on his enemies. In verses 3 through 5, before pointing a finger at his accusers, he points the finger at himself. And consider what he says. In verse 3, he says, if I have done this, if I have done this, this wrong thing, he wants the Lord to deal with him appropriately he's done this, whether it's evil to a friend or he's unjustly robbed an enemy, he trusts that the Lord will deal with him appropriately. Basically what David is saying here is that he trusts that the Lord will give justice to his enemy if it's merited. And so when we look at verses 1 and 2 and we find David coming to the Lord, calling to the Lord for refuge and and for shelter from His pursuers, we have to weigh that against verse 5 when He comes back and says, but if I am guilty, if what they're saying is true, then let them catch me. In effect, He's asking God to turn away. Saying that if I show up at your door asking for shelter, but I'm the one in the wrong shut the door in my face. Don't provide me with, ref- with the refuge that I'm seeking if it's not warranted. Deny me your protection. Give to me and to my enemies what is right. Be just. If David is in the wrong, he's willing to submit to the Lord, giving victory to his foes. And so what this tells us is that while David desired vindication and he even expected it, of greater concern to him is that the justice of the Lord be upheld. David is willing to be humbled if it means his humiliation serves to display the righteous and just character of God. His desire is for justice, even if that means having it fall on his own head. And so I I think this begs a question of us. Is that your first reaction when someone calls you out and says that you have sinned? Especially if this comes from someone who typically isn't for you. You know, the people who typically don't have an encouraging word for you. It's typically biting and critical. They're not on your side. If it comes from them, do we take it seriously? Are we willing to stop and consider if perhaps we actually are in the wrong, and then are we willing to accept the consequences if in fact we have sinned? Will we just admit fault and take responsibility for our actions? Unfortunately, I'm afraid that this isn't normally our response. We don't pause and consider if there is truth to what they're saying. Instead, I think our first response, our first reaction is to try to shift the blame to someone or something else. And I think there are probably quite a few different ways that we do this. I want to focus on two. The first is that we we blame other people. And we do this by saying the issue is really with the other person. It's your fault that you're so easily offended. You know what? if, If you weren't so sensitive maybe you wouldn't be concerned with the things that I say and the things that I do. Maybe you just need to mind your own business and stop worrying about what I do. Then it wouldn't be a problem for you, now would it? You know what? That might be true for you, but it isn't true for me. So why don't you stop holding me to your standards? You just need to worry about yourself. And you know what? It seems like you were looking for something to be bothered by here. Because I don't see any problem with what I have said and what I've done. And see, when, when, when we immediately respond this way to people confronting us about potential sin, then I think we're prone to a couple of things. I think this shows up in a couple of ways. We regularly dismiss other people when they point out ungodly thoughts or actions, we just blow them off. Get out of here, I don't have time for that. Or, we pretend to acknowledge the sin that we have been called out on, but we give a fake apology. You know, the ones that sound like, well, I'm sorry if you were hurt or if you were offended by what I did. That's just putting it back on them. You're the problem. You were hurt, and I'm sorry you were hurt. And see, in this, there is no acknowledgement of sin, and there's not even a willingness to acknowledge sin because we refuse to see ourselves as the problem I think another way that we do this is we blame our circumstances and see here what we do is we, we point to things outside ourselves and sometimes things that are outside of our control it might be as simple as you know what I was hungry I was thirsty I haven't been sleeping well and so that's why I responded the way that I did maybe it's you know what I've been having a really bad day, really bad week, a really bad month. Or it could be something really serious. I'm going through a crisis. A very real crisis. But but listen, and I'll say this carefully. Going through a legitimate crisis still does not give us a hall pass to act ungodly. We do not get to pass the buck for our sin because we lost our job or are having difficulties in our marriage or because we were diagnosed with cancer. Now, I don't want you to hear that and interpret it as if I'm saying, you just need to tighten up your bootstraps and suck it up. That's not at all what I mean. It's entirely appropriate to grieve and to lament. Grief and lamentation are biblical and healthy responses to a crisis. I mean, just consider the Psalms. Consider Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. There, David writes this. How long, O Lord, will You forgive me forever? How long will You hide Your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And yet, the Scripture's do not allow us the freedom to just feed every sinful desire that we have just because we're suffering. See, grieving and lament are only biblical and godly when they turn us back to God and back to our desperate need for Him. Not away from Him and into the waiting arms of sin that will most happily have us in our darkest of hours. See, David concludes Psalm 13 by writing this. You have the, How long, O Lord, at the beginning? And then in 5 and 6 he says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. When someone points out potential sin... And we put the blame on our circumstance, it's probably gonna show up, probably gonna be prone to saying things like, I know I probably shouldn't have said and done that, but you know, I'm, I'm just having a, a really bad day. Or, yeah, you may be right, but do you know what I'm going through right now? See, so again, this is false acknowledgement of sin, it's not biblical repentance we might say that we agree that we have sinned, but then we try to reason it away. We try to s- explain it away. Say that, well, you know what? I-, I, was, I was really just being influenced by something that was outside of my control. So you don't need to hold me accountable here because I'm really not at fault. And see, the danger of immediately deflecting blame when confronted with possible sin is that we're trying to justify ourselves. What we're doing is we're declaring ourselves as righteous. I am righteous, and these things do not take away from my righteousness. I'm maintaining my righteousness because my sin is really someone or someone else's fault. It has nothing to do with sin dwelling within and residing within my own heart. It has nothing to do with misplaced affections. It has nothing to do with lack of desire to worship the Lord. If I can make someone or something else responsible for my sin, well then God would be wrong to hold me accountable because I'm still in the right. But John writes in 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we are always deflecting blame and are unwilling to own up to our sins, then this creates a tremendous problem for us when we come to the Lord for shelter. I mean, look at what David says in verses 12 and 13. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. God is against those who are unrepentant, who will not acknowledge their sin. To flee to Him for shelter on the basis of your own righteousness is a death sentence. Like ignorance, you're going to arrive at the gate expecting to be received into the dwelling place of the King, but you're going to be met with rejection, with wrath, and an eternal hell. When I continually justify myself and base my righteousness in what I do or do not do, when I come to the Lord for shelter, I find His wrath, not His mercy. You come to Him with grievances against others, expecting vindication, expecting that He is going to go get them for what they've done. But all you find is His indignation. We do not want to be found standing before the Lord saying, Judge me according to my righteousness. Jesus makes this clear in the Sermon on the Mount when He deals with uh, various sins. Think about what He says about lust. With lust, He says, it's not enough to have just avoided adultery. To The one who looks at someone and has a lustful thought is just as guilty as if they had committed adultery. The angry person is no less liable to judgment than the person who commits murder. Both fall short of obedience to the moral standard of God's. Kingdom. Jesus then sums up God's standard for someone to do, to be declared righteous by commanding, "You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Anyone who stands before the Lord on the basis of their own righteousness will, according to Isaiah sixty four six, only have polluted garments. Offer in their defense. In order to find refuge in the Lord, we need Him to clothe us in the righteousness of another, one who was truly righteous. And in His great mercy, He has made that righteousness, His very own righteousness, available to us through Jesus who was struck by the arrows of His wrath for us. Christ purchased shelter for us through the shedding of His own blood in our place. Because He died and has been raised from the dead, we can flee to God for refuge without fear of being crushed under the weight of our own sin. Hebrews ten nineteen through 22 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. What this means is that shelter in the Lord, to come to the Lord for shelter, is defined by repentance and faith. How do you find shelter in God? Through turning from sin and trusting in the finished work of Christ. Through repentance and faith, sinners have the perfect, sinless righteousness of Jesus imputed to them. That is, it is credited to the account of the elect, to the faithful, those who turn to Christ for salvation. Only when His righteousness is placed on you by grace through faith will God be a shelter to you. Outside of Him, there is no shelter you will only be crushed. So if you're holding tight to your own righteousness, if you're making the argument that you do enough good and not nearly enough bad to deserve God's mercy, please repent and turn to Jesus for salvation. Because only those who come to Him will be preserved from the wrath of God. And that's the second thing to talk about in the text, which is that only the righteous will be preserved from the wrath of God. You see, Psalm 7 is very clear when it talks about God's feelings towards the ungodly. Look, I mean, just look at the different, way that, different ways that God's response to unrighteousness is described in this text. In verse 6, he arises in his anger. And I think it's neat. You have this placed next to the fury of, of David's enemies. I mean, sure, David's enemies are, are filled with, with fury in their pursuit of Him, but when the Lord arises with fury of His own against them, the picture is that they are stopped dead in their tracks. Their fury is nothing more than mild irritation when it is compared with the righteous anger that God has against them. It's nothing. And then see in verse 11, He feels indignation every day. See, the rage of David's foes might rise up for a minute. They might really be about it for a moment. But then it fades and it goes away. And they're on to something else. But the Lord's displeasure, His indignation, His anger with the unrighteous, the ungodly, is constant. It is steady. It is unfading. It is consistent. Verse 12, the Lord will strike down the unrepentant with His sword. Verse 13, the Lord's bow is bent and readied. The idea here is is not that the Lord has His bow just kind of laying off to the side somewhere, waiting for a time when it becomes absolutely necessary to take up. No, it is in His hand and it is drawn. He has His arrows ready to fly and pierce the heart of the wicked at any moment, David is very clearly warning his foes that if they refuse to repent, then they will not receive mercy from the Lord. And yet, the fact that God delays releasing the arrows of his judgment and striking down the ungodly is mercy from the Lord. The patience that God has with sinners who refuse to worship him is beyond comprehension and just just think for a moment about Israel's conquest of Canaan let's go there for a second when we read about the scope of God's judgment of the people of the land how thorough and complete his judgment of the people of the land was if we're honest sometimes it makes us a little bit uncomfortable but we cannot read about the conquest without the context of Genesis 15 16 See, there the Lord tells Abram that his offspring would inherit the land. Remember, he takes him out, look at the stars, your offspring will be as numerous as stars in the sky. But, they will not inherit the land of your sojournings until the iniquity of the Amorites, the sins of the Amorites, is complete. It's not until hundreds of years later that the Lord judged the people of the land through Joshua and the Israelites. The Lord was incredibly patient, holding back His judgment for generation after generation against a people who refused to worship Him, who turned in worship of other gods, who did abominable things like sacrifice their own children to their gods. And He held back His judgment while the people of Canaan continued in unrepentance. Peter also brings up the patience of the Lord in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. There, Peter is encouraging Christians to resist false teachers, false teachers that would turn them away from true doctrine, from, from the faith. And in his encouragement of them, he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. See, they were saying, look, He hasn't come back yet. Probably not coming. That's what the false teachers were promising. But Peter says, He's not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but His patient patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, he rounds out that point by pointing to the fact that one day the Lord will cease to be patient. In verse 10 he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That the Lord is so incredibly patient and holds back the full measure of His wrath is mercy on top of mercy. And yet, David makes it clear in Psalm 7 that this patience will end. Psalm 7 serves as a warning to those who had accused Him of of wrongdoing and is a warning for us as well. There will be a day in which the Lord rises up for the appointed judgment. At the end of the age, He will take His seat before the assembly of the peoples, and the arrows of His judgment will fly. And no one will argue that He is unjust. All will declare that Jesus is Lord. And yet, despite our sin, despite our rebellion, despite our rejection of Him, our refusal to worship Him, God has provided a means of escape from His wrath on that day. God the Son, the eternal Word, took on flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus lived the sinless life required of us. The burden of perfection that is placed on us, He met. He kept it. And yet He died in the place of sinners. He died the death we owe He was raised from the dead so that we through repentance and faith could be counted as righteous having been declared right with God. There is no more wrath for those who find shelter in the Lord Jesus. He took it all for you. He drank the cup to the bottom. His righteousness provides cover for all who turn to Him For salvation. And so, as we think about this, I would say, parents, this has serious implications for us in the raising of our children. I will stand before you and say, there are many, many days. I would venture to guess today will probably be one of those days where I find myself at some point saying, just do what I say. Please stop fighting with me. Please stop talking back. Just do what i asked i mean it's easy to fall into the habit of only being concerned with obedience do they do what i say or do they not do what i say but the question is are we doing the hard work of talking with them about why they are so prone to disobedience We must take the time to explain to them that the reason why they struggle to obey is because they are sinners. They have a sin problem. Help them start making then the connection between obedience to you and obedience to the Lord. If it's only about obedience to you, it's not nearly far enough. Are they seeking obedience to the Lord? And explain to them that obedience to the Lord is more than making good choices instead of bad ones, but is happily doing what He commands, finding our greatest joy in Him and rejecting what He hates. And so I think this is going to require a few things of us. I think we, we, we need to really think about what we are trying to accomplish when we discipline our kids. Is it? Just to get them, is it to just get them to stop doing the thing that I don't want them to do so they will start doing the thing that I want them to do? Or do you use discipline to share the gospel with your kids? Whether you use timeouts, time ins, spanking, taking away privileges, or something else, don't waste the opportunity that discipline provides to walk your children through the gospel. Use discipline to talk about how God punishes sin, but also to explain the forgiveness that God offers to us in Jesus. Make discipline more than just a tool to modify their behavior. It's easy to talk to them about being good, not bad. Good little boys don't fight with their brothers. That's what bad little boys do. Good little girls don't talk back to mommy. That's what bad little girls do. You need to share. That's a nice thing to do. We cannot make the standard for them just be good, don't be bad. Because all that teaches is that their righteousness comes from how many good things they do and how few bad things they don't do. To learn to put their, it teaches them to put their confidence in their own ability to make good choices than bad. It points them away from the righteousness of Christ. Another thing that we we cannot do is we cannot make excuses for their behavior or their disinterest in the church. Do you find yourself saying or thinking things like, you know what, so-and-so is such a bad influence on them? I see a huge difference in their behavior when they've been around fill-in-the-blank. They're You know, a good kid, but they're just having a really hard time in school right now. If the church did this or did that differently, then they would be more interested. They're sinners. They have plenty of talent embedded in them at shifting blame for their sin without our help. So don't give them any more. Talk with them about what their choices reveal about their affections. Point out their sin and the need to repent and trust in Christ. And this applies to grown-up kids as well. I, I can't fathom what it's like to watch a son or a daughter grow up in the church and then turn away from it when they're older. But don't do them the disservice of clinging to a baptism when they were a child to say that they're really Christians when all the evidence suggests otherwise. Share the gospel with them. If they claim that they're a Christian, take them to the Scriptures and point out the disconnect between their claim and their lifestyle. And pray for God to be merciful to them. The good news for us is that where we have and where we will come up short, there is mercy and shelter for us in the Lord Jesus where we have sinned by not taking seriously the command to raise up our kids in the fear of the Lord, to not teach them about Him, about their sin, and about God's mercy, repent. Come to the Lord for shelter through repentance and faith. Appeal to Him for mercy and wisdom in pointing your kids to Him. And then do it. Open the Bible with them. Pray with them. Sing songs of praise with them. And point them to their need to be covered in Jesus' righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you have covered us in a righteousness that is not our own. You have made us right with yourself, through the blood of your Son, by your grace, through faith, through the work of your Spirit, through your Word. You have been kinder to us than we can fathom. And so, Lord, may we never lose sight of Your grace. May we never lose sight of the work that You've accomplished through Christ. May we stop grasping for our good deeds, trying to justify ourselves by our works. Lord, keep us focused on the cross and the great work that you've accomplished through your Son. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.